Welcome to Consumer Adventures. My name is Giorgia Pasqualetto, and in this podcast, I bring you behind the scenes of emerging challenger consumer brands. Today with me, I have Melissa Snover, CEO and founder at Nourished. Nourished is a 3D printed, personalized gummy made of seven layers of vitamins and nutrients. I am incredibly excited for today's interview. Welcome, Melissa. Thank you for joining me today. It's my pleasure. Thanks so much for inviting me to participate. My absolute pleasure. So why don't we start by introducing properly your products and your company? I'm sure a lot of listeners will be already familiar. Me, myself, I'm absolutely fascinated with what you do. Can you tell us a bit more about Nourished? Sure, absolutely. So um, Nourished is really the first authentically manufactured, personalized um, nutrition or vitamin vitamin project in, in the world. And the way that we're able to do that where other people um, are not is that we actually develop 3D printing technology in-house and we have 12 patented technologies on 3D printers. So we use these 3D printers to be able to create a truly unique product for each person, um, pretty much every five minutes on each printer downstairs. And so you go onto our website and you answer some questions on an online consultation questionnaire around your existing health, your lifestyle and your goals. And the clever uh, intelligent logic algorithm that we built produces a recommendation of seven different nutrients from a list of 30 plus possible options of vitamins, minerals, superfoods, and actives that are best suited to you. We then 3D print all of our products made to order fresh for each person and then ship them directly to our consumer stores every month in plastic-free home compostable packaging. That sounds absolutely brilliant. And how come seven layers? So seven layers, people ask this a lot. So really the first answer and the honest answer is when I came up with the idea for this concept, I was taking seven vitamins right. <laughs> at the very beginning, but then we did actually run a study with 10,000 mm. UK consumers and asked them how many um, vitamins and minerals were they taking on a daily basis. And the answers right. came in, in the median values between five and eight. So I was really kind of just validated that seven uh, was a good number. In addition, you know, we wanted to be able to offer something that would be really convenient and easy for the customer to take. So nourished is around 10 grams uh, vegan sugar-free gummy, and you can eat it in like one to two bites and it's nice and fast and convenient um, as opposed to, you know, if you had like 25 in there, it would be relatively large and that would be not maybe as convenient as, uh, as what it is today. Absolutely. And obviously your solution is um, at the intersection of two big hot trends, uh, very interesting, which are 3D printing and personalization. So obviously I would like to, to talk about uh, them a little bit more. And what I want to explore next is the 3D printing side of things. Um, how did you get into 3D printing and specifically, of course, food 3D printing? Sure, that's a great question. So I actually started to develop FMCG products in 2010 when I came up with um, a recipe for the first truly vegan allergen-free gummy candy range, which was called Goody Good Stuff. Mm -hmm. And certainly 2010, I was a little early for the vegan trend, but I really mm -hmm. was trying to create something that was gelatin-free because I've been a vegetarian since I was 17 and I couldn't find any gummies without gelatin that didn't right. taste really like wax, really. And so I decided I would try and do that in my kitchen. 
I was successful in creating a recipe after a period of time that was based in alginate technology. So that's seaweeds. Um, and once I had that recipe, I went to a mainstream manufacturer, a very large one, um, to ask them if they would make it for me. Now, I used traditional manufacturing to make this product, and I sold it all over the world in bricks and mulch retail. By the end of the second year, we had 40,000 stores globally selling the products, but I was making all of this stuff in a big you know, traditional factory. And I was so frustrated by a lot of the limitations of that that basically you had to make 100,000 units of every flavor. The MPD cycle to be able to create a new product was around 18 months to two years. Mm -hmm. And it made it so prohibitive to be able to create enough varieties and options to be able to please all the consumers in all the different markets that we were selling in. And so when I sold that company in 2014, I started my journey in the world of 3D basically because of my frustrations. I was, I'm a highly developed empath as many entrepreneurs are. And this idea that I couldn't create enough varieties to be able to, for everybody to walk out of the store with something that they wanted really bothered me. But when you think about this idea that, you know, no matter how many options I came up with, you still can't put that many enough on a shelf. Like even in an Amazon warehouse, you can't put enough. And so my brain's way of working around that problem was to think, okay, what if we could create a device which people could engage with either online or in an actual shop where they could choose from a huge variety of different variables? Like what shape do you want? What color, what flavor? Do you want it to be sour? Do you want it to be fizzy and so on? And then, Basically, that would be allow them to create a limitless number of potential outcomes and everybody could potentially walk out with exactly what they wanted. And so that was when I started developing 3D printers for food. And in 2015, I created the first FDA and FSA compliant 3D food printer, which again, we launched all over the world. It was called the Magic Candy Factory. And that concept is it's still out there right now. If you could travel, you can still find it in a lot of places. But um I started to realize after probably about 18 months that although it was amazing and I was really proud of it, it wasn't having the real impact that I had as envisioned for the technology when I was developing it. Mm. And so my team and I started to think about ways that we could apply that technology in an industry and a market segment that really, really need and would benefit from personalization and weren't currently getting it in a market offer that was available at the time which was health and wellness. So we we set up the, the business in May of 2019 and we launched Nourished in January of 2020. Amazing. This is fantastic. I'm so yeah. fascinated by all of it, <laughs> all of this. And I love especially how you went and looked for a technology that would allow you the degree of personalization that you wanted, that you envisioned, um, and at scale as well. Is that correct? Exactly. So basically, I wasn't... Um, going out to market trying to use 3D printers, I had an idea in my mind of the product I wanted to create. And I looked at loads of different ways that you could do it. And then it became very clear to me that 3D printing had the most potential to be able to solve for the problems I was trying to solve for. And so I started to work with existing 3D printers. And then I realized, well, these are never going to do it because they were slow. They weren't food safe. 
they were really challenging to use. So like the technical knowledge burden was super high. So if we wanted people in like, you know, shops to be able to use these, we couldn't expect that they had a degree in CAD design, right? So we had to come up with different ways to make it really easy and to make it really fast. Then when we developed the Nourish printer, we realized that we had to start again even once more because with Nourished, we are actually combining seven unique materials into one final output, which has never been done in any 3D printing anywhere, even in non-food. And so we actually developed the Nourish printer specifically with the end product in mind. And the Nourish printer is amazing. We've secured several patents on it since we started. And it basically has seven extruder heads all going at once and allows us to create a month's supply of truly customized, highly accurate dosage, food safe product in around five minutes, which makes it scalable and makes it so that we can make the product at a price point that's not 10 times more than the rest of the market so that it's a it's basically accessible to everybody absolutely that's fantastic your expertise in 3d printing is incredible your knowledge and i was wondering what is your background how did you build this knowledge so i didn't study um I, I mean, I studied engineering a little bit. I did computer programming a little bit when I was in uni. But by the time I started to develop 3D printers, my knowledge of programming was really outdated. <laughs> um, and specifically for machine driver code, which is G-code, I had never done. So basically, um, I have um, an undergrad in political science and a master's in business. So none of that really helped me to develop 3D printers. But the most amazing thing about the time that we live in now is the accessibility of information. So mm-hmm. if you're ambitious or stubborn, whichever way you want to look at it enough, you can really learn anything that you want to learn um, pretty much for free um, at the, at the you know, if you're willing to put the time in and you're willing to devote time. So when I was developing the first 3D printer, I tried to get other people to make it for me, some people who yeah. are experts in that market. And no, everyone said, no, you can't do it, or we could do it, it'll take two years, and it'll cost six million pounds. And I was like, well, that's not going to work. So I just decided to do it myself. I bought 3D printers on the internet. I took them apart, put them back together, read every single book I could find on 3D printing, attended trade shows, did chat groups with other people in the maker, what we call the maker community. And I learned everything from the ground up. And it allowed me to launch that concept from start to, to launch, from development start to launch in less than six months. And yeah, and then I optimized the design as we went, but the MVP was was certified food safe and, and was was patentable. Wow, that's incredible. That that's really impressive. <laughs> What other categories do you think are suitable or interesting for 3D printing? And do you think 3D printing in food will become uh, more mainstream? Yeah, that's also a really good question. So I think that at the moment, um, most people who are using 3D printers to, in combination with food, other than us, um, are using a single material and focusing on the end shape or form. So for example, I'm sure you can go onto YouTube and you can type in 3D printed chocolate and you can see people printing, taking chocolate, heating it up, printing it out, it's drying and it's becoming a different shape, a smiley face, maybe even a 3D shape, right? Mm -hmm. And this is the same material going from one 
to becoming the same material, but just in a yes. different form. And this is, this is like what I did with Magic Candy Factory. It's fun, but it's not really valuable over time. It's a novelty, mm-hmm. right? So the future of 3D printing has to be more in line with the kinds of things we do at Nourished, which is combining multiple elements to create a limitless number of final outputs, which are a combination of different things. And so what we do at Nourished is just the beginning of that, but where I can imagine and where we have visions to also further expand in our own product range is creating other edible formats, which can be customized by Mm -hmm. combining multiple materials. And so for example, in the future, there's potentially a way for people to have multiple cartridges inside of a machine, even in the home eventually, which would be able to create, I don't know, 50 to 100 different products. Um, And so that would have a right to be a machine that people have in their home. I think when you think about a kitchen, right, you think about what's in my kitchen, every single thing uh, appliance wise in your kitchen, can make loads of different things, right? Your oven can cook loads of things. Your hob can do loads of things. You can do lots in your microwave, but you can, the only machine we have in our house that makes only one thing is a coffee machine because we're all addicted I to caffeine, I was thinking exactly right? about that one. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, the rest, but the idea that you would have a 3D printer in your house that would make you a chocolate smiley face is nuts, right? So we have to find a way of having machines that can create multiple outputs with combinations of materials. And that's where real value can be can be driven. Um, and at Nourish specifically, we're in the process of developing Nourish Protein, which will be launching by the end of the year. And this is personalized protein bars with added functional ingredients and a limitless number of potential flavor combinations, which I think I cannot wait to eat this product. Sounds but I also think yes. that people will like it, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. When did you say again? By the end of this year, we will launch the beta. Yeah. Fantastic. Can't wait. Yeah. (laughs) So if some of our listeners were thinking about implementing um, personalization uh, or 3D printing in their their offering, what would you say are the things that they should be aware of and some specific challenges that come with, um, with this? So I think that um, depending on what kind of products people are trying to create, there's a lot of different ways that you can approach 3D printing. With food, it's the most complex because not only do you have to be able to create a repeatable, high quality output, Mm -hmm. but you have to do it in a way which is food safe. Mm-hmm. and can pass regulatory compliance with things like the FDA and the FSA, which we have to do on an annual basis to prove yeah. that we are doing it in a way where the consumer is protected, right? Mm-hmm. And, is, and that is absolutely right that that should happen. And that happens in all food products. So I think, you know, when people are approaching 3D printers for food, be very careful about just buying a 3D printer off Amazon and throwing a paste extruder on it. Because Anything that you make with that printer might be fun for your own personal use, but you cannot sell that to a consumer um, Mm. unless you want to get into quite a bit of trouble. So thinking about things like hygiene and food safety is really important when you're looking at food. However, there's lots of other ways you can use 3D printing um, and even CNC. So if you think 3D printing is, is basically additive manufacturing. So you're adding, so you're making something that is going from um, a platform and then it's going up no matter what kind of shape, even if it's only one layer, it's going up, not down. CNC is retractive manufacturing. So basically imagine you have a piece of wood, a CNC machine will engrave the wood 
And so you can actually use the reverse of 3D printing to create personalization in other non-food formats as well. So I've seen a lot of people do this with things like you know, wooden boxes um, that can be personalized for really nice wines that you can give as gifts. Mm-hmm. Um, I've seen people do it for things like, you know, signs and, and funny kinds of like um, things that you can give people for your birthday. Those types of things are very low cost. Uh, see, a very small CNC machine is not expensive. And you could do things like that that would increase customer engagement. But I think um, when it comes to food products specifically, people need to be very wary of, of using 3D printing unless they have a really decent understanding of the compliance that's required. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, th- all of that information is available on the FSA website or the EFSA website and then also the FDA Uh, website. Absolutely. These are all very important points. Yeah. Thank you for sharing those. Um, I wanted to ask you about the early days of the company. So what was the um, early team and what were really the steps that you um, took to start the company? Um, and also in terms of the name, I think I've seen different names um, or perhaps as different brands that you have or different divisions of the company. So um, I don't think we ever had another name for Nourish. We, we have an, our company name is Remedy, which is basically the business overall. So mm-hmm. under our company, we have two brands, which is Nourished is for the preventative health solutions. Then mm-hmm. we have another brand called Scripted, which is working on personalized curative health, like personalized medicine. Um, and the, the business is actually, the trading entity is called Remedy Health. But no, Nourished is... Um, Actually, we, we came up with the name Nourished internally. My head mm-hmm. of design and I did that together. And he, uh, he is still my head of design today and he's wonderful. Um, so what would, what would I tell you about how I started it? So in the very beginning, I had um, myself who has a decent amount of experience. So that's a good starting point. And the first thing that I usually do is I hire a designer because you need someone to visualize what you're trying to do. There's Mm. needs to be an identity. There needs to be an identity for online. And um, Reese, my head of design came on board very early before we ever launched Nourished at the very beginning. Mm. And my CTO, Martin, who is also the co-named inventor on all of our recent technology was actually working with me at Magic Candy Factory. And I brought him in and I promoted him to CTO to join me as we built up the new business idea Mm -hmm. and then and then as we got a little bit further down so at the very beginning I had four people so um I had a my basically Caitlin who was my head of brand Reese head of um Reese's head of a design and then Martin my uh, chief technology officer and then very fast uh after that we started to hire people like um head of marketing head of customer experience head of operations head of production Um, head of because uh, we make our product end to end. So our business is much more complex than a lot of people who we will be using co-packers, right? To make their mm, product. They don't, yeah. they don't have their own factory. We actually have two factories where we not only b- make our nourished product end to end, but we also build our own 3D printers that make our products. So we have a highly complex model. Um, but now this has been, you know, since we launched, I think in January, so in about six months, we hired about 20 people, then we went live. And then since January of 2020 to today, which I guess is about 18 months, um, we now have 70 people and um, a third factory and a lot more um, boots on the ground. Yeah. 
Absolutely. And this sounds fantastic, but it also sounds a bit expensive. Um, <laughs> so I was wondering, can you tell us a little bit more about um, the fundraising um, to date? I know you have raised a very important um, investment around eight million pounds. Can you tell us a bit more about your fundraising journey? Sure, absolutely. So in the very beginning, when I set up the company, we had no investment and I had to go out and raise that money at the very beginning. And I think raising the first investment money is harder than raising the Series A in a lot of ways, because at the very beginning, you're just going to people and saying, I have an idea. Um, I promise I can do it. Can you please give me some money? Sure. Um, whereas when you have set after, so I raised 2 million in my seed round, which was the highest female founder seed round in UK history. And then at, with that 2 million we build, well, it is, but also it's not that much money. So then you think, oh gosh, we need more women going you know, to the, exactly. get up to bat. Everybody needs to yeah. get up to bat. Um, but yeah, so basically then with 2 million, I built the two factories, we have, you know, a very high level of assets on our balance sheet because we mm. own all of our machines, yeah. ingredients, team, marketing, war chest, and so on. And then when we got through about 18 months, we raised our Series A and that money was, you were correct, it's 8 million that we raised. And we raised this from very big um, institutional style investors. Mm -hmm. And that that round of funding was I'm not saying it was easy. No funding is easy, but I, I would say it was a lot easier to justify the investment because we had a certain amount of track record. I could show that, you know, I said I was going to do this. We achieved our forecast for our first year. I did set up the two factories. We did secure five patents. We are live in three markets. We are growing at X amount. And so the amount of data people can look at to feel safe and like, you know, a bit more confidence in the model and what we're able to achieve was so much higher because we had, even though it was not a lot of time, there was a decent amount that they could at least look at. So when we did that, um, you know, that process, again, I did that completely on my own. A lot of people use agencies to do it. In this instance, I did not do that. There's nothing wrong with using agencies. I just didn't do that. Um, but I basically had, I mean, I don't know, even want to think about it, probably about 50 meetings, 50 introduction meetings, half of which went to the next meeting. Then you get into nitty gritty with people. And by the end, you know, the round interest was so high. We had, we were probably over 300% oversubscribed. And so at the very end, when you have to make decisions, that's the time when it's quite tricky because you have to weigh up all these potential investors, what they're what they're going to be like working with them for a period of time. So you expect that you will have a relationship with them for several years and sometimes as much as 10 years. So you need to make sure that you like working with them. And then you need to make sure that they're going to add more than just money because there is enough money around, right? So, so we really looked at strategic investment that would help us to do one of our four or five major directives for the business for the next, you know, two to three years. And so we were able to bring in incredible investment. Um, one of one of our lead investors is ADM, Archer Daniel Midlands. Um, they are, first of all, an amazing company with fantastic people, but they're also the world's leading producer of plant-based protein. So as we go to develop the protein project, they're hugely strategically beneficial. 
they're also massive and they make a lot of their own um, patented ingredients, which have nutraceutical benefits. So they are really, it was like a perfect match. Um, and then we have other investors who are really good and very um, insightful and have a, amazing networks and things like fast growing consumer goods and D to C models and subscription businesses. And so these they're helping each in a different way, but we have been really lucky to be able to find fantastic people who are really going to help us to achieve these top four directives. And these are expand into two additional product lines, one of which we already did because we launched kids in April. Yeah. And the yeah. second is protein, um, launch into two new markets. So we're going to set up a production facility in North America and we're going to launch the Middle Eastern market before we raise the next round. Um, and then, of course, continue to grow aggressively the entire nourish business. And then fourthly, to get the um, MHRA approval on the scripted project to be able to commercialize the curative health solution side of the business as well. That's awesome. That sounds incredible. Yeah. What is the vision then, the final vision for the company? Well, we really want to use our know-how in technology to make a meaningful difference in people's lives by creating fit for purpose, personalized solutions in the areas of preventative and curative health. And so we are not limited by one model and we are not limited mm. by one um, route to market. We are able to apply our technology in a humongous number of different beneficial ways. And we are just getting started really. So the team and I are highly passionate about what we do. I'm extremely lucky to have absolute superstars um, all around me who are equally bought into the vision of what we want to achieve. And I think we're not really going to stop until we've been able to really make a positive impact in a meaningful way in both preventative solutions, like with the Nourish brand, but also with scripted in the curative health solutions. Absolutely. Where do you see the most um, potential for Nourished? So with Nourished, uh, it has the right to be a global leader brand, definitely. And mm. we already see the way that the consumer market has responded to it already yeah. Um, yeah. As, as really good indicators that, that, that we are on to, that that's the right way to think about it. Um, you know, non-pill formats for vitamins and minerals and supplements is the biggest growing part of that segment you know mm. so basically non-pill formats or chewable vitamins yeah. is the way that most young people want to take their vitamins so sure. if you think about that and then you think about the the not just growth of the personalized trend but the it's here to stay and it's going to stay forever impact of personalization being a demand of the customer and us being the only people in the world who can make personalized gummy I think that that's a pretty amazing um place kind of be. like intersect to be exactly yes. so I think mm. Yeah, so I think Nourish right now is present in the United States and the United Kingdom with both adult products for um, gummy vitamins and children's products. Um, the, the protein product will also be launched in both of those markets. But then I think really our next market that we will go to our region that we will focus on will be the Middle East. Um, the Middle East is actually um, highly enthusiastic about personalization as well and highly enthusiastic about health and wellness. And so it's a really nice market to, to work in. And I've done that many times over the last 12 years of my career. Um, and our products are all gelatin free, halal, free from all major allergens. So they're very well suited to that market, also sugar-free. Um, so that will be the next marketplace that we, had, we open. 
that's very very interesting also very innovative market as well over over mm, yeah they're ready <laughs> for this kind of innovations i think yeah and absolutely what initiatives or ideas that you and your team implemented work particularly well for you and for your brand well um one of the best things that we do in the business that we started very early on and that we now still do, um, even though we have a humongous team now and it's not as easy to do it uh, in a short period of time, but um, on every single Friday, we have um, idea day. So I will give a general like roundup of what what's happened and some key topics for next week to be aware of. And then the rest of the team have the floor to be able to tell me any idea that they have for any improvement of any kind that we can make to the business, the product, our marketing, our messaging, the kind of toilet paper we have in the building, anything that they think will improve the overall business. And we get people giving us um, ideas from everything from manual labor operatives from production to our CFO, to everyone in between. And I usually say yes immediately to around 70% of those ideas and we, and we implement them the same day usually that's yeah. amazing can you share some good example with us of something that you implemented so one of the good examples that we had very recently that is actually going to go live mm. uh, on on monday is we had on last i guess it was uh two weeks ago because we had to develop new products so two weeks ago on the friday we had a big um idea around um, customers who had now been with us for a year because we mm -hmm. finally are th at the same this age where we have customers who have been with us a year and customer service head of customer service said you know we should really start to think about the fact that people might get flavor fatigue um, because they're taking the same thing for a year and and then um, also the marketing team then brought to light that these kinds of ideas around different flavors being mm -hmm. highly um, you know well-liked in different regions and that this would also help them. So like two weeks ago, myself and the head of MPD sat down, started to develop new flavors. Mm -hmm. So we are launching it on Monday. Um, it is called Stack the Odds in Your Flavor. And you can now uh, choose not only the seven nutrients you get, but also what flavor you want your vitamins to be. And the options so far that we have that we will launch with on Monday will be strawberry, orange, um, blackberry, pineapple, and cola. And then you can also have any of those flavors as fizzy or sour. So you can have like fizzy cola, sour strawberry, right. whatever. Mm -hmm. Or sweet, if you want to have them sweet, you can also have that. So this will really be an example of really cool idea. I loved it. We did it. We're launching it. That's fantastic. Even even more personalization, even more customization. And I was actually wondering, um, looking at the website, uh, about the flavors. Um, what would the flavors be, actually? Yeah, that's it. Exactly. And we're going to keep adding more and more flavors as customers recommend them to us. So, you know, some flavors are really popular in the United States and some are really popular in the UK. And there are some that are popular in the Middle East that people in the US would never have heard of. And so by being able to do that with different markets, we can continually add to the product to make it more relevant and appealing to the different marketplaces where we are. Absolutely. Do you have a way to track feedback from um, from consumers and have you maybe made some changes listening to this feedback? 
Oh, 100%. So we track our customers' engagement and response very, very acutely. So mm-hmm. we, we measure it on a weekly basis. I mean, my head of customer service measures it on a daily basis, but mm-hmm. I look at it on a weekly basis and we look at things like sentiment around things like our key metrics around shipping, product satisfaction, customer engagement satisfaction, customer service interactions. Um, Then we also look at things that customers are asking our customer service team. Mm -hmm. And this is is trackable through our software solution. So basically it will show us that, here's a good example of another thing we did based on this. So about, I I don't know, I think it was probably about six months ago, the kind of the months are running together. It was when we were in the middle of lockdown And the number of people contacting customer service, asking for advice about what supplements would be beneficial for mental health went through the roof for obvious reasons. People were, it was, it is still very challenging, but it was really, really challenging. Some people had not seen their family or sometimes anyone for like over a year. Um, And people are not meant to live in isolation, right? We are social um, race. So anyway, Absolutely. we we saw this go through the roof. And on the back of that, we developed three new ingredients that have highly, highly, highly um, beneficial impacts on mental health, and that have clinical trial data that has been peer reviewed, it's really efficacious. And we launched it directly on the back of the customers asking for it. That's incredible. I really, really like it. And this kind of leads me to the next question, which is connected to the customer. And in particular, how do customers know what vitamins they need um, inside Nourished? I know you mentioned a questionnaire and I was wondering why a questionnaire and not a blood test or a DNA test, for example. Yes. Um, So phenotyping questionnaires like the one that we have, the one that we have is extremely rigorously developed with intelligent logic principles and machine learning and it is awesome and I have done so much testing on it I can't really explain it in words but and I have also done it based on what I would answer and recommend and then what I would recommend if I did a DNA test for a blood test and the results are the same Same, firstly Mm -hmm. so it's that good but at the same time a blood test for vitamin deficiency is a fallacy. It's so funny that people are selling this as a model. If you imagine um, when you when you sometimes go to the doctor, they ask you to do a fasting before you do your mm-hmm. test. They ask you to yeah. fast. The reason is because they don't want what's in your blood from that day to skew the test result. Okay. So if you imagine there are certain vitamins that you will intake on a daily basis that are water soluble and some that are fat soluble mm-hmm. and they will change the, the amount and concentration in your bloodstream, which would show up on a blood test will change every single day, depending on what you ate. So if you take a blood test this morning and you didn't eat breakfast and you just had coffee, it will show a totally different result than if you had a balanced breakfast with an orange juice. It will show a totally different result. So the idea that you can really accurately figure out what deficiencies people have from one blood test is not is not scientifically balanced. Right. The only way to do it would be to take around, I don't know, probably about six would be enough over a period of six weeks and then take median values. And that's a humongous amount of aggro for the customer, pain, cost, you know, and, and it's not adding really that much value. The other side of it that you asked about was genetics and genetics is a very interesting science of which I very much like, but it is 
not really beneficial for recommending things like nutrients and vitamins because at the end of the day, your DNA does not change. Maybe it changes only slightly, uh, one to 5% people say at the moment, and it's changing that, that advice, but it's not a lot, okay? From when the day you're born, Till the take you test today, which is why you only get to, you only need to take a DNA test one time, right? You don't have to take it more than once. So the reason that that's not beneficial is that what we need to know here at Nourish to be able to give you the best recommendation of what you need today is we need to know what you're doing today. I your DNA does not know that you're an overweight vegan who's trying to run a marathon. Mm. You know, like we need to know what's happening today. And so the phenotyping question is absolutely vital. What is more relevant and exciting is things like microbiome testing, because that gives mm. a picture of today. But right. the problem with this science is it's so new and the data is so rich that they have not done enough to be able to make meaningful correlations on the data sets yet, in my opinion. Blood science is a very old, urine science is very old, DNA science is huge, the data sets that they have that they can compare and correlate and create kinds of um, meaningful information reconciliations with microbiome. You're talking about trillions of variables in each individual and the amount of people who have had the test done is minuscule in comparison to the data set they have for DNA. So the idea that they can make um, correlations between certain things yet, I, I think it's a little early. This makes so much sense. Thank you so, so much for this answer. I was really wondering and thank you so much for, for clarifying this. Yeah, <laughs> no problem. So changing a little bit the topic, you mentioned something very interesting uh, about how consumers uh, were turning more and more to your products, asking also for support with mental health uh, as COVID hit, um, which is which is for sure super, super interesting. I also wanted, I also was wondering what was the uh, broader impact that COVID had on your business? Absolutely. So yeah, it was a very tricky time. So we launched Nourished in January of 2020 and COVID really hit the UK in, in its entirety in the middle of March. So we had been open and live for like eight to nine weeks. So it was that period of time and that age of a business means everything is very fragile, right? Mm -hmm. Most businesses fail. 99 point something percent of businesses fail in the first year yeah. so the first year of a startup no matter what um you know worldwide crises aside is a really really dangerous and very very fragile time and so to have the covid crisis then hit and have to send home uh pretty much half my entire team immediately um, and have them have to work from home for the first time and keep everybody on track and not lose any of our you know, excellence that we have across different departments was very challenging. But I'm very, you know, there's a couple of things that we benefited from that a lot of bigger businesses will not have been able to do. So we, we are a, a super agile startup. We have always been um, cloud-based, paper-free, highly technology-based. So communicating with technology to external people, to ourselves, um, has been something that we did from day one. Yeah. We use Dropbox, we use Teams. We don't, I don't have a filing cabinet even. 
Like, I don't even know what you would put in there. <laughs> um, yeah. So like, and I think that this is something that was great because we set it up from the very beginning in this way. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I also think, you know, the other thing that people don't realize is workers also have mental health problems, right? So like people being isolated and working from home, some people love, right? Some people are loving their life. Other people have to work in their bedroom and they hate it, you know, or feel quite cut off from everyone. And so, you know, it was a real concern of mine that some of my team would not be very in a very good place, right? And that's, that's really important to me. So I did a lot, I took a lot more time one-to-ones with everyone on a weekly basis. I still do now. Um, Not long, 15, 20 minutes. How are you doing? How's it going? Do you need anything? How are you feeling if we come back to the office one day a week? Is there anything that I can support you on, et cetera, that kind of thing. Um, And then, yeah, and it's important. These people are my crew, dude. They're on my team. I don't want them to be unhappy. And and I don't want it. If they were in the office and they were unhappy, I would know because I would see it, right? So it's more important than ever that you keep in contact with your team and not just your heads of department, but your team. Mm -hmm. And I think um, that really helped us. The other thing that really, really helped us which might surprise some people is, you know, in the very beginning when COVID hit, I think everyone felt very frightened and also that they had no control, which just adds to fear because what people need to feel like they have some hope or some control or they feel very, very frightened. And so, you know, that's the same for workers as it is for just general consumers. It's the same for everyone. And so when we saw what was going on, and we saw what was happening with things like PPE and hand sanitizer and blah, blah, blah. I, we got together, the team and I, and we said, right, I think we can do something about this. Our laboratory is a GMP compliant. We can make hand sanitizer in that lab. It's not hard right. to make it. Mm. Should we, should we do it? And they're like, yes. And then one of the teams started sourcing bottles. One of them started sourcing raw materials. One of them started sourcing labels for everything. The marketing team started putting out messages on the website if you need hand sanitizer contact us here Um, and then the technology team um, started thinking about what they could do and they said you know what we could do Mel we've just made this design on CAD we can 3D print probably about 30 to 40 of these a day what about if we make these for the local authority the healthcare workers the home the the people working in the care homes um, because they can't seem to get any and we can actually make them that are much better for them to wear. They can replace the plexiglass. They're not throwing them away every day. What about that? I was like, that's wonderful. Do that. And then, and then the rest of the team got together customer experience and said, Mel, our customers are freaking out. Nobody can find masks. Nobody can get them anywhere. And I was like, right, let's make some. And we made some and we started giving them away for free. That's and that like made them all feel... A, it makes us, A, we should do it. It's our responsibility. If we can help, we should do. And I think that's the responsibility of every person on earth. But I also think it gave everyone a sense of a little bit of control that we were making a positive impact and there was something that we could do that would make an impact in a positive way. And I think that that was hugely beneficial for everyone's mental health. And um, that just made me happy. You know, that was a win, win, win. People yes, won, absolutely. the team felt better, the business benefited yeah. from a stronger sense of culture. Everybody's winning. That's wonderful when that kind of thing can happen. Absolutely. Yeah, that's that's incredible. And I, I literally had goosebumps uh, while oh. while you were you were saying that. <laughs> yeah, they're and they are such a they're such a thoughtful, caring pe- group of people. And they're so 
they're so smart and so innovative that they that they can do something with it you know and I'm, I'm very proud of them absolutely I can I can really tell um in terms of the culture of the company um do you have a motto or a principle that you um run the company by um we have multiple things that we do um you know, we have lots of slogans, like, mm. we will never again do anything that anyone has ever done before. And that's the truth, because we actually create, you know, patented first world technology that creates patent, creates first in the world products, we've never made a me too product, and we never will. But then you have things like, you know, how do we, what is our basic fundamental elements and it's empathy so empathy for our co-workers empathy for our community empathy for our customer because through empathy we can really try to see how we can better develop products how we can better support each other and how we can treat each other as we want to be treated so I think empathy is the overriding um, you know uh, um, thing that we think about how do how do my decisions get made um, usually with a beginning of empathy. How does our creative cycle start? From empathy, try and see yourself and feel the pain of the customer. How can we solve this for them? Um, and that really helps, actually. I think that's a good way to look at life. Absolutely, yes. yes. You mentioned that you have uh, recently launched a range for kids. I know you're a parent yourself. I wanted to ask you, how is it to run a business uh, as, a, as a parent, as a mother? And if you have some advice of something that has worked for you, uh, you know, to juggle it all, to juggle it all and uh, um, yeah, be the best mom and the best uh, CEO that you can be. <laughs> oh, I'm not either one. Because honestly, you have to just, ex- but that's the secret is you have to accept. You have to accept that you will, you can never, there is no, there's not a judging panel watching you, first mm-hmm. of all. Mm-hmm. No one's watching. My my husband says to me, the panel isn't watching right now, babe. And, <laughs> and, I, and, like, and I'm like, shut up. But actually he's, but he's right. He's like, you're not, you're not going to be scored on this chocolate cake. Mm-hmm. Calm down. Like, mm-hmm. Would that um, be your, because, your inclination? Oh, yes. I mean, I really believe that I try my absolute best at everything I do. And I think that's a good thing. Mm. But I also sometimes need to give myself a break. You know, I think so. This is something he's very good at balancing me. And I think, you know, I think that with children, it's very, very hard. And I think that everyone who does uh, work with children is a hero. And I and I think that the the my kids now they don't need help to eat you know they're a little bit older and it's much 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 easier but at the same time um without a fantastic partner there is absolutely no way that I could do it um he and I support each other massively and he is incredible so without him I would never be able to do it but at the same time now that I'm a little bit older the kids are a little bit older they actually I think it's good for them to see me working mm-hmm. especially my yeah. especially uh, my young my oldest girl because I think it's a good thing you know I think it's good for them to see me working and loving what I do I actually let them do internships with the business in different departments they come in to the factory and come do factory tours 10 12 and 14 mm-hmm. and actually it's way it's you know opportunity when, for them. it is it's mm-hmm. super fun and I think that they also start to associate you know like loving what you do is important um putting your best into what you do is important 
Um, showing up is important. Not letting people down is important. You know, and I think that those are good values that they learn because they're spongy. You know, kids are spongy. Yes, they will yeah, pick up sure. whatever you're giving off. <laughs> yeah. So I think it's really good for them to see that. Um, and I think, yeah, and I think I'm just extremely lucky to have such a good support network around me and an amazing partner. That's fantastic. Yes. Um, one last question. I'm conscious of uh, of your time. Um, what, in your experience so far, what does it take to be uh, a food tech entrepreneur and uh, build a brand in this sector? So I think in order to be an entrepreneur in food technology or food in general or FMCG in general, you need to be extremely um, motivated to solve problems and you need to be extremely observant and empathetic, like I said before, about how, how the current situation is not good enough because developing yeah. a me too product of course there is a model for that but you'll always be competing on price and it's a really hard yes. road mm -hmm. right so by Devotion. by really yeah, yeah it's yeah it's really difficult really really difficult yeah. and and I think that if you are really really wanting to be a disruptive entrepreneur you need to be looking at um finding something that is completely unacceptable to you and to others and finding a solution for it. And if you can do that, if you can look at the world in that way and know that you can do something about it and not be, oh, that's just the way it is. Um, you know, you have to be ready to be unsatisfied and then to do something about it completely change what is available. But I think once you have that kind of a motivation and that kind of a mindset, you don't, there's no special degree you need. There's no special set of skills that you need. You need to be able to, envision a solution for a problem and you need to be able to bring communicate that vision and bring wonderful people to your side and then you can really do anything absolutely do you have any suggestion on how we could do more of this because i don't think is a you know kind of innovation meeting we sit down and we think about it a bit of that yes but i think it's really a mindset a state of mind do you do you have any suggestion on how to develop that Yeah, I think that there's two different kinds of ways of looking at innovation, right? You look at the big players in the market and they're so used to what they already do and what they've done for a very long time. And there's almost a fear of doing something so different that it will damage what they already have, right? So this is why often in like, for example, the world of confectionery, you know, innovation for Snickers is Snickers with extra nuts, okay? That's innovation, that's not really. That's not really innovation, is it? Um, I, in my opinion, that's not innovation. But where you do find innovative thinking being much more prevalent in, a, in an authentic way is in the startup community. So I think startups and, and entrepreneurs who are not pigeonholed into thinking of, about things in a specific way are going to be the people that come up with the ideas. What, what big business needs to do and what investment companies need to do is, is support these people so that they're, they have enough support to be able to get these amazing ideas and turn them into something real and grow them into something meaningful. And that's where you know these kinds of incubators and accelerator programs are really important and where you know big business needs to be aware that innovation is something that doesn't naturally go into a very large business and they need to be able to come up with a hybrid approach in order to bring it in. Totally, this is a very interesting point. 
uh, and I could literally stay here hours talking with you about innovation. Yeah. I'm completely blown away by, by today's conversation. Thank you so, <laughs> so much, Melissa. Um, one last thing before I finally let you go. Um, where can our listeners find you? So um, just go to get-nourished.com or just type in nourished vitamins on any search bar and it will come right up. Awesome. Thank you so, so much, Melissa. Thank you. It's lovely. Have a good day. Bye. And thank you, everybody, for listening. I'll see you in the next episode.